Our scripture reading today is going to be from James chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. So if you have a moment, would like to turn there. So again, James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. Listen now to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruits. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let's go before the Lord in prayer as we prepare to approach his word. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a kind and merciful and loving God, that you have not left us in the darkness of this world, but you have given us a light unto our path, and that is your word. And we pray that with your word you would reveal to us this morning yourself, that you would reveal your glory, your righteousness, your holiness, but also your mercy, your grace your compassion and your patience, ultimately that you would reveal to us the author and perfecter of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that you would do this for our good and for your glory, for it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Children ages three to first grade are dismissed to children's church, so if you make your way to the back of the sanctuary, you'll be taken to your class. Um, this morning we're concluding our little series that we've been in on the book of James. We started it last fall, we took a break in the weeks just before Christmas, and now we're back finishing it up. Um, and so we're in this passage, James five thirteen through 20, and I want to be honest with you right out of the gates here. I was really struggling this morning, um, and I don't know if I've shared this with you or not before, but... Um, I have a very kind, very gentle, very compassionate wife, and um, I've been at this preaching gig for a while now, and, um, and so I've had the opportunity to preach many bad sermons. Um, and uh, my wife, who is very kind and very gentle when I preach a bad one, um, she doesn't say, that was a bad one. Uh, she sa- instead, she says something like, hmm, that must have been a really tough passage this morning. Um, you know, kind of softens the blow for my sensitive ego. And this morning, I-, I was thinking about it, and I was thinking, if I try to cram everything in this passage into this one sermon, I- I'm going to get home, and Jennifer's going to say, 
That must have been a really tough passage. Uh, you know, there's prayers for healing and confessing our sins to one another and reclaiming those who wander from the truth. It's a lot. I do think Jennifer left to the, go to the children's church, so I might be safe here. But, um, you know, in an effort to not miss the forest for the trees here, um, I, I want to make sure that we really grasp the big picture of this final passage in James' book. And so here's what I'm going to do this morning. Um, the stuff in this passage about the prayer of healing, uh, for healing, it, it's so loaded that I'm going to avoid it altogether this morning in the sermon, actually. Um, but here's what I'm going to do. After worship this morning, if you have questions about that, I'm going to be in the fellowship hall, and we can get together, and we can talk all the way through it, um, because I have studied it a lot, I have things to say about it, but we're just not going to be able to get all the way there this morning during the sermon. Um, so anyway, I hope that's fair, but like I said, I really want us to see the big picture. I, I want us to see how this whole passage really holds together, because you see, James He's coming to the end of this letter that he has been has written, and this is his conclusion. He's bringing it all to an end here, and these were his final instructions, his final thoughts that he wanted to pass on to the church. And so what he's doing here is he is encouraging them to participate in and to engage in the ongoing ministry of the church. Um, Jesus said something incredibly remarkable about the ongoing ministry of the church in John chapter 14, verses 12 and 13. He said, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. I mean, that is amazing to think about. It's incredible to think about what Jesus promises there. Because Jesus was saying, I'm going to the Father, but everything I came into the world to do, I will now do it through my people and through their prayers. And what did Jesus come into the world to do? Right? He came to redeem and to restore His broken creation. He came to a world plunged in sin, ruin, misery, and death, and He came to make life flourish again, right? So listen, His promise is that His power against sin, His power against brokenness, His power against death itself, it is going to be released into the world. His power to bring life from death. His power to redeem, to cause humanity to flourish again, it is going to be released into the world. It is going to have a real effect and change the world. And that power, Jesus said, it is going to be released through my people and through their prayers. And that's what James was writing about in these last verses, Jesus' power being released into the world through the ongoing ministry of His church. And I want us to be bold enough this morning to actually try to believe it, right? To, to dream even just a little bit. You know, to, to try these promises and this encouragement on for ourselves, to ask, what would it look like for you 
to be engaged in this ongoing ministry that James describes here in these last few verses. What effect would an engaged community like this have on our city and our community? I mean, to believe what Jesus and James said, how would that change you? I mean, how would that give you hope? How would it heal you? How would it set you free in life? And that's really what I want us to be thinking about this morning. So here we are, the ongoing ministry of the church. And James tells us in these verses that this ongoing ministry of the church is seen in three things. The praying ministry of the church, the confessing ministry of the church, and the reclaiming ministry of the church. So those three things, praying, confessing, and reclaiming. Okay, first, the praying ministry of the church. I'm not recommending this TV show. I want you to hear that. But a couple of years ago, like many people, um, I got hooked on the TV show Breaking Bad. And um, it's about this high school chemistry teacher. If, if you don't know, everybody should know what Breaking Bad is. But anyway, if you don't know what it is, it's about this high school chemistry teacher, Walter White. Um, and he, um, he broke bad and he started producing crystal meth. And, and it shows this show shows Walter White's character being transformed over time and through the choices he makes. And increasingly over time, he's transformed into this ruthless, callous, hardened, and violent man. And he he just basically becomes a monster, really. And he becomes less and less human the longer the show goes. Now, the creator of this show is a guy named Vince Gilligan, who is a self-professing agnostic. I'll come back to that in a moment. Um, But there's this real interesting uh, scene in the final episode of this show, because this inhuman monster that Walter White has become, he's afraid Right? All of his choices are beginning to catch up to him, and his life is crumbling before his eyes. Um, and as a viewer, it's registering extremely with your sense of justice, and you're thinking, yes, he's finally going to get it, right? Finally. And you're, you're almost excited with anticipation that he is about to be judged for everything, right? And so if you're a self-professing agnostic, um, and how, how, do you, how do you suck your viewers in a little bit more? How do you pull your viewers into the complex reality of this character and show him, monster though he is, just a glimmer of his humanity? Do you know how he did it? He had him sit in his car and say a brief, like, one-line prayer. And he, just, he looked up to heaven, and he said, just get me home and I'll do the rest. And listen, it is one of the most powerful scenes in that entire show because in a matter of seconds, your heart softens to this character, right? He's this vile, monstrous villain, and all of a sudden, he's small, he's needy, and he's fragile. And in that moment, you're reminded of his humanity. You know, Christian or not, There is something that we all recognize to be deeply humanizing about prayer, like nothing else can be, because it expresses our true nature, 
our true nature, right? Our true powerlessness, our true dependence, our true neediness. You know, the word pray or prayer in the passage that we read this morning, it shows up in every verse from verse 13 all the way down to verse 18, right? But did you notice in verse 13 and 14, James is basically saying, no matter what is going on in your life, pray. If you're suffering, pray. If you're happy and cheerful, pray. If you're sick, go call the elders to pray, right? The praying ministry of the church, it is about embracing what it means to be fully human. See, in verse 17, James used Elijah as his example of someone who prayed. And James wrote, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. It's a very interesting way for him to phrase it because what he wants you to do is he wants you to remember Elijah's story. And yes, Elijah's story had these, was a story of great dramatic answers to prayer that you see in our passage. But if you go back and you read Elijah's story, you will find that he was very often afraid, that he was depressed in his life that he was despairing, that he wrestled with his failures in ministry, that he got exhausted and worn out in life. I mean, he was a man like you, a man like me. He was like us, and he was most fully human when he was admitting his true nature, his powerlessness, his dependence, his neediness in prayer. But we hear the encouragement in these verses, right? Whatever it is, James is saying, take it to God in prayer, and he releases his power through prayer. But we argue back against this in our experience, right? Because we say, I've prayed, and I've prayed, and I've prayed, and he doesn't seem to be listening or answering me. Or we say to this, I prayed, but God didn't give me what I want, Listen, I, I am, I'm a very slow learner, I realize that, but my kids are slowly teaching me things in life. Um, every year, as soon as November hits, my kids start counting down the days to Christmas. Um, it's all they can think about. I'm sure yours aren't as materialistic as mine, but uh, we do. And they start dropping hints about what they want for Christmas, right? They come home from school and they say, we talked about what we want for Christmas today at school. Hint, hint, do you want to hear what I said? Um, You know, Dad, will you read my letter to Santa? You know, I need you to proofread it. Um, Right, right. You know, and if they really want something, they don't ask for it just once. (laughs) They ask for it over and over and over again. Every time that commercial shows up, they call you into the room. Every time they see somebody else with it, they point it out, right? They're talking about it all the time. Now, I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine one of my kids said they want this Lego thing or this bike or this doll thing, and I want you to imagine that the very first time they mentioned it to me, I was like, that's what I'm getting them for Christmas. Even imagine that that very day I went out and purchased it. Do you realize that from the middle of November up until Christmas, that every time they ask me from that point forward, it only builds my anticipation and my excitement 
about getting to Christmas morning. Because what I'm really saying here is my supreme delight is their father. It, it, It really isn't in their asking. It's in my ability to give to them. And the asking only increases my delight. It's like compound interest exponentially building my anticipation and my excitement for Christmas morning. Now listen, all those stories that Jesus told about prayer, and he kept saying things like, keep on knocking, keep on asking, keep on seeking. What if he was really trying to tell you something? What if he was trying to tell you that the greatest delight of his heart is in giving to his children. And the very essence of his glory is his grace. What if you were convinced of that? What if you were convinced that he's a God who loves to give and he delights to release his power through your prayers? Wouldn't you just keep on asking? And what if God didn't give you what you asked for? What if my kids asked me for something that I knew would hurt them? What if my kids asked me for something that I knew would not be good for them? It would would only be because I love to give them good gifts that I would ever say no to them. Right? If God says no to you, or if he says wait to you, don't you realize it's only because his supreme delight is in giving you the very best? And he's always going to give you what you would have asked if you knew everything that he knows. James wrote at the end of verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working, or the prayer of a righteous man is effectual and availeth much. You might remember that phrasing of it. That phrase, I think, has caused a lot of people to stumble because we say, oh, well, God won't hear me. I'm not good enough. I'm not righteous enough. Neither was Elijah. (laughs) That's why he's here in this passage as an example. And God heard Elijah. And God answered. And the promise of the gospel is this, that right now, if you believe in Jesus, you are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. And it is spotless and it is perfect. And God is your Father and He delights in you even as He delights in His own Son. So go to Him. And ask Him and keep on asking Him, right? And trust Him. You are most fully human when you participate and you engage in this praying ministry of the church. Okay, second, let's talk about the confessing ministry of the church. It's not only through our prayers that Jesus releases His power into the world, His power against sin and brokenness and death, but it's also through our very life together. Listen, I love the balance here in James, because you can see him, you can read this passage again in in its entirety, and you can see him weaving this throughout his discussion of prayers for physical healing. You can see him wanting also to talk about at the same time spiritual healing and confession. In verse 16, James wrote, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. You know, the word confess there um, in the Greek, it means something like to ratify or, or to affirm um, or admit. You know, three of, this is what I think, three of the hardest phrases to utter in the English language have to be, 
I'm sorry, I was wrong, and you were right. If you don't believe me, get married. Um, Now listen, James is not saying confess all your private sins to one another. And he's not even saying confess to God your sins in front of one another. He's saying if you have sinned against someone, then you are to go to him. You are to go to her and you are to admit it. You are to go and say, I'm sorry. You're to go and say, I was wrong. You're to go and say, you were right. Listen, some of you will keep falling back into the same sins and never find freedom. You'll find yourself trapped in the same patterns of sin over and over again, and you will not find healing I mean, healing. You won't be growing into your true humanity until you go through the bittersweet experience of confession, of confessing your sins to one another. See, the reason James gave for confession here in this passage is to get healed. The reason isn't to say, look how messed up I am. Look how complicated my life is. Look at all the struggles I've had in my life. Look how interesting my life is. Look how much harder my life is, more worldly I am in my life. You know, there are lots of reasons to confess your sins that have nothing to do with healing. What James is talking about here is life together in a community formed and molded and shaped by the healing grace of Jesus. A community that is living in the freedom of grace. And it's spilling out and onto everyone in that community. Can you dream and imagine what a community like this, what it would have to be like in order for there to be this freedom? It would have to be a community that was so poised to show grace, mercy, and forgiveness that it welcomed confession like this. It would have to be a community that met people where they are, not where we think they should be. It would have to be a community where all the pretending was gone, and there was a real freedom to be vulnerable with one another and transparent with one another. It would have to be a community that was so deeply committed to one another that any breach in relationship would create a longing for healing. The author, Gordon MacDonald, he, he was not an alcoholic, but he went for months to an open, open Alcoholics Anonymous meeting to learn about its culture. He wanted to write about it, and he got a ton of great stories and insights. And initially, he wrote that he felt the need to impress his new friends with who he was. Um, he, he felt the need to flash his resume and credentials before them, and he wrote this. The fact is that the group only wanted to know one thing from me. Was my life broken, and how could they help? Now, what if you were a part of shaping the ministry of the church to be a place like that? McDonald wrote, I often left AA meetings deeply moved, sometimes in tears. I left feeling I'd been with people who were dealing with soul-level issues. For them, this hour was about life and death. Something in my soul resonated with the honesty 
of the group. There was not an ounce of judgment in the circle, just openness. Everything was on the table. What if the confessing ministry of the church created an environment like that? Right? He shared this story from one of his meetings that he attended. One morning, Kathy, I guessed at her age, 35, joined us for the first time. One look at her face caused me to conclude that she must have been Hollywood beautiful at 21. Now, her face swollen, her eyes red, her teeth rotting, her hair looked unwashed, uncombed for who knows how long. I've been in five states in the past month, she said. I've slept under bridges on several nights, been arrested, raped, robbed, now weeping. I don't know what to do. I don't want to be homeless anymore. But she said, sobbing, I can't stop drinking. I can't. I can't. And then this is how he concludes the story. He said, next to Kathy was a rather large woman, Marilyn, sober for more than a dozen years. She reached with both arms toward Kathy and pulled her close, so close that Kathy's face was pressed to Marilyn's ample breast. I don't know why I had to include that. I was close enough to hear Marilyn speak quietly into Kathy's ear. Honey, you're going to be okay. You're with us now. We can deal with this together. All you have to do is keep coming. She says, hear me, keep coming. And then Marilyn kissed the top of Kathy's head. And as a germaphobe, I think, man, that hair was so unwashed. Um, You can go find the article somewhere online. Um, You know, what started out as a journalistic exercise for this man, it, it ended up throughout the article with this guy basically asking the same question over and over and over again. What if the church could exhibit and practice grace like this? Can I tell you something? You and I, we were made to know and be known. And I think you know it without me needing to connect the dots for you this morning. If you could be a part of a culture that was that free with both honesty and forgiveness, truth and grace then it would begin to heal you from the inside out. It would transform you. Jesus releases His power against sin, brokenness, and death, His redeeming, restoring power through His people. You know, last night, some of you know that we're looking for an assistant pastor, and I took a candidate and his wife out to dinner last night to tell them about Grace Community Church, and I I basically said, Um, at Grace Community Church, we have some really, really messed up and messy people. Um, That's what we have. Um, Marriage troubles, people in recovery for all sorts of things, Um, people who show up on Sunday sometimes shocked that they're here. Um, Very encouraging, right? Flattering. Um, But here's what I was basically saying. We're a mess and I can't think of anywhere else I would rather be. Right? I've been in a lot of churches. And I've never been in a church 
where it is so clearly okay that you're not okay here. And that's a beautiful thing. Listen, when there is real freedom in the gospel for us to be broken in front of one another and know that we will be loved, if you ask around, I think you'll find the same thing. But I'll also say this, we've still got a long way to go. And it's going to take you and I engaged in and participating in this ongoing ministry of confession to one another in the life of the church. Okay, we've covered a lot of territory, but one more point, the reclaiming ministry of the church, and I'm going to try to be brief here. This shows up in the last two verses of James' letter. James was writing about reclaiming someone, he says, who has wandered from the truth. Um, see, he's not talking here about us being the sin police with one another, you know. As soon as we catch somebody having failed or made a mistake in their life, that we pounce on them and we jump on them to confront them. That's not what he's talking about. Wondering means that there's a pattern, right? A pattern in someone's life of moving away from the gospel, a pattern of someone moving away from the fellowship of God's people, a pattern of someone moving away from the truth, a pattern of hardness, increasing hardness and sin in someone's life. And James was saying, if you see this in someone, it's very, very serious. Right? It's a matter of life and death spiritually is what James is saying. That's why he's talking about, that's what he's talking about when he writes, that, uh, about saving his soul from death. The ongoing ministry of the church is a reclaiming ministry. We're to move towards that person, James is saying, right? To confront that person, to call that person, to bring that person back to Jesus. Back to Jesus to find his or her true humanity and identity. And it's never to be a confrontation filled with anger, but a confrontation that is filled with grief and sorrow and seriousness and grace and mercy. Listen, now here's what I think is amazing about verse 17, last verse for James. Let me read it again. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. But you and I can't save anyone's soul from death. You and I can't cover a multitude of sins. Only Jesus can do that. But James puts it that way so that you will realize this is Jesus' ongoing ministry through his people. Right? You can't save anyone's soul. You can't cover a multitude of sins. But God uses you as his instrument to do just that in the lives of people around you. He releases his power against sin, brokenness, and death through his people. Okay, here's the last thing I'm going to say here, and I'm going to leave you with this. Of all the things James could have ended this letter with, why does he end his letter by talking about this reclaiming ministry? I mean, he stops his letter on a dime. It feels awkward the way he ends it. It is so abrupt. And he really wants it to stick out. 
Why is that? Let me offer what I think is the most likely answer. All the scholarship about James understands that the author James is Jesus' brother, right? And if you read the New Testament, you will see that during Jesus' lifetime, James was not a believer, didn't believe in Jesus. You know, after Jesus' death and resurrection, there were all these appearances of Jesus for like 40 days. And he was appearing to these groups of people time and time again, right? To the disciples, to bigger groups of people. But there was only one person that Jesus ever made a very special, very personal, individual appearance to in that time period. Can you guess who? It was James, his brother, right? He came back for James. He came to reclaim James, to bring him back. And James was changed. He became a believer. He became a leader in the New Testament church. You can read about it in the book of Acts. It's all over the place. Now, here's what I find fascinating. If you stay with me just a second longer. If you read through James' letter, the word brothers is one of his absolute favorite words. He uses it all over the place. You know, it, it, it's even in verse 19, is he, he clo- or is it 17, 19? Uh, 19. I'm getting all confused with my verses. But anyway, other authors in the New Testament use this word brothers too. James is not unique in that. But no one uses it as frequently as James. Now, here's what, here's what fascinates me. Of all the New Testament writers, he is the only one who could have legitimately called Jesus his brother. And he never did it once. Not once. And if you think about it, I bet you know why. He saw the resurrected Jesus. He saw the one who came and defeated death, who broke brokenness, who destroyed destruction in himself. He wasn't just a man. He was God in the flesh. God came to redeem, to restore, and reclaim his broken, fallen humanity. And that's amazing good news. And now this same Jesus, through James, he calls us to participate in and to engage in his ongoing ministry to the world through prayer, through confession, and through reclamation. And the question for us is, will we? Will we participate in that ongoing ministry together? Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. Praise You that You have spoken to us, Your people, and we pray that Your Word, by Your Spirit, would be effectual in our lives, that we would see this call to participate and to engage in the ongoing ministry of Jesus to the world. And so we pray that You would make us better prayers that we would be true to our humanity, that we would live before you in dependence and powerlessness and neediness. We pray that you would make us into a people set free by the good news of the gospel in Jesus, so free 
that we can go to one another and confess our sins in order that we might be healed. Father, we pray that this good news of the gospel, that it would move us out into the world, that it would move us out in order to reclaim those who have wandered from your truth, in order that we might bring them back to Jesus, in order that in him they might discover again their true humanity in him. Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.